You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. The podcast that spent Valentine's Day cuddled up next to its Dakimakura of Albert Camus. I'm Megan. I'm activated and I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm RJ. Do you know what a Dakimakura is? No. It's a Japanese body pillow where they have like someone kind of like a printed on it lying in a sensual manner. I lay with the stranger as well. I'm young, dumb, and full of Camus. And today, uh, we're, we're young, dumb, and full of all kinds of things. Um, and we're covering... <laughs> we're covering poet, author, civil rights activist, director, actor, singer, dancer, and RJ will tell me others I'm missing because the list does go on. Just general all-around renaissance woman, Maya Angelou. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good contribution. That's right. That is right. It's, it's Angelo, apparently. Not Lou. That one threw us off, too. I watched a lot of interviews, because if there, there's one thing I've learned doing this show with you for four years, it's not to trust you when it comes to pronunciation. Yeah, Angelo. <laughs> Hell, I what plebes I don't know that? Us. I got it. You were just as surprised as me. But I know now? Yes, we do know now. It also doesn't help that I spent the better part of my high school years theater kid adjacent, which was when Rent got big again, and they would all sing La Vie Boheme or whatever, which has a line in it that rhymes Curry Vindaloo with Maya Angelou. That's been stuck in my brain for 15 years, but uh, yeah, they're wrong, as it turns out. And I will use their perpetuation of this incorrect pronunciation as just another of the many reasons that Rent is terrible. I must pay the rent! <laughs> Yep, that's how that song goes. Anyway, you know who's not terrible? Maya Angelou, they said with only cursory knowledge of her biography, hoping they hadn't accidentally missed something glaring, like how Alice Walker is apparently rapidly anti-Semitic and denies the Holocaust. That was a fun discovery, but... That's Gina Carano. Well, yeah, her too. Um, I'm getting off topic again. Maya Angelou wasn't a Holocaust denier, was she? As far as I know, no, but she did power around with Malcolm X, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. All right, cool. Over the course of her sprawling career, uh, littered with awards and honorary degrees, Angela wrote and published seven autobiographies, three books of essays, over a dozen books of poetry, seven children's books, two cookbooks, six plays, uh, one of which she also directed, and that's not even getting into the film and TV stuff and the spoken word albums. If you ever want to struggle with feelings of supreme inadequacy over how you're spending your life, it doesn't get much better than itemizing Maya Angelou's list of works on Wikipedia after spending the previous day sitting in bed failing to beat Hades for six hours. Loser. Yeah? How many cookbooks you published? Three. (laughs) Yeah, what are they called? Tell me their names. Cooking with RJ? Yeah. Cooking with RJ again? Yeah, Cooking with RJ Part 2, Electric Cookaloo? No. 
That was quicker with RJ again. That's oh. number two. I don't know why I would the third book would be called that again. Cooking with RJ. <laughs> again, again. <laughs> Cooking with RJ for real. Cooking with RJ, this time it's personal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. Brazen with RJ. <laughs> It's boiling with RJ, braising with RJ, frying with RJ. <laughs> Got grilling with RJ this summer. Keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Angela is probably best known for her autobiography and first work. First work. Good God. Um, I know why the caged bird sings. But we're going to be ignoring that today in favor of looking at her poetry instead. More on why in a second. First, though, RJ. Did you have to read any Maya Angelou in school? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah, this one's pretty sure. You want to elaborate on that at all? I'm just pretty sure. <laughs> didn't stick with you, huh? No. Definitely didn't have to read a, one of our uh, autobiographies. Maybe some poetry, I'm assuming so. Didn't stick with me. I see. There's a lot of poets out there. There are indeed a lot Hers of poets Hers is a name there. I knew. <laughs> But not a name we knew correctly. It's a name. Name's a name. Name is a name. No, Guido. RJ 2021. Guido's Jeez, a name. Fuck. God, no. We're not We're not going back to this shit. So, How about you, Meg? <laughs> uh, we read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings at some point in high school. Probably junior year. I don't really remember because it didn't really stick with me. Which sounds sort of horrible to say. Like, I know it's objectively good. Maybe like many things, it was too literary for 16-year-old me to appreciate it. I don't know. Maybe I should go back and reread it. I wasn't ever taught any of her poetry. That was something I actually got into on my own after, I don't know, I, I, reading in some context the poems still I rise and being like, oh, this, this is awesome, actually. And they are. Her poems are fucking great. And I like them a lot. And while she was, by any reasonable human metric, a very successful poet, and many of her readers consider her like a poet first and an autobiographer second, critics by and large consider her autobiographies more important and more worthy of attention. I'll go into this more when we get to the actual poetry, but in short, we at Ono class say, lol, no, we do what we want, and we want to do poetry, which I know is a weird thing to hear from us, because usually we say, oh god, poetry scary, but we'll get there. But in order to do that, first we have to learn about the woman behind the words. RJ, what have you got for us? Maya Angelou was born Marguerite Annie Johnson in St. Louis, Missouri on April 4th, 1928. Madge's parents were Bailey Johnson, a.k.a. Daddy Madge, who was a doorman and a Navy dietitian, and Vivian Baxter Johnson, a.k.a. Mama Madge, who was a nurse and a card dealer. You gotta call her Madge. Madge. Oh, what should I go for? No. But Marguerite? You keep doing... No, do your thing. Margarita. No. Call her Mag. Marge. Call her something, just keep it moving. Madge was the second child for the couple, her older brother, Bailey Jr. So dad got a kid named after him, but mama doesn't. Nice. I mean, that's these things tend to be, by and large, patrilineal. Which, I mean, we can talk about the, all the things wrapped up in that particular tradition. So her brother, Bailey Jr., is the one who helped Madge go from being Marguerite to becoming Maya. Her brother was just a year older than her, so he learned to speak when Madge was still just a little babe, too. He would refer to her as Maya's sister all the time, and well, eventually it just stuck. Maya's sister? Yeah, that's <laughs> Maya's sister. 
Aw, that's really cute. <laughs> I think her brother might have been Barack Obama. <laughs> God damn it. Which explains something later in life. Um, what? <laughs> Madge's early years were marked by her parents, as she referred to later in life, calamitous marriage. When Madge was three, her parents called off the marriage and her father sent Madge and her brother to Stamps, Arkansas alone by train. Uh, a three and four year old. Oh my God. Just to remind you, to live with their paternal grandmother, Annie Henderson. This actually was not so bad for the kids as Granny was well off financially, despite the fact most African Americans faced severely harsh economic conditions at the time, even by Great Depression standards. Granny owned a general store that sold basic commodities, and she was known for making, quote, wise and honest investments. Perhaps Granny would have been a trusty member of the Church of RJ. After four pretty good years of living with Granny without warning, Daddy Mad showed up and swooped the kids up and was like, Spanks for the memories, Ma, but I'm taking the kids and getting out of here. And he brought the siblings back to St. Louis to live with Mama Madge. Madge was now eight, and within a year of being brought back to Mom, Madge was sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend, a man named Freeman. She disclosed what happened to her brother, who told the rest of the family. Freeman was arrested, charged, and convicted for the sexual assault. His sentence? One day in jail. What the fuck? Yeah, they really threw the book at him, you know? What the fuck? No, but seriously, how does that fucking legally work? He raped a child. I didn't get too far into this. Oddly, within four days of being released from jail and his one-day sentence, Freeman was murdered. What are the odds? What a mystery! It's assumed Madge's uncle has carried out the murder, although no one ever was caught or charged with the crime. It's family justice. I guess we'll never know. Madge became mute for almost five years after this, as she believed, as she stated, quote, I thought my voice killed him. I killed that man because I told his name, and then I thought I would never speak again. Because my voice would kill anyone. That poor kid was probably so fucking traumatized. Jesus Christ. According to biographers, it was during this period of silence that Madge developed her extraordinary memory, her love for books and literature, and her ability to listen and observe the world around her. It was also in the time after Freeman's murder when Madge was still eight and her brother nine that they were sent back to live with their grandmother as things had been working out better there in retrospect. Yeah, gee. <laughs> uh, with her, yeah, right? Like, the kids were living here. Things were going well. We bring kids back to St. Louis. Oh, this one gets abused. Now she's mute. It was during this time with her grandmother that Madge got to know a teacher and family friend, Mrs. Bertha Flowers, who helped Madge uh, with her speaking again. I mean, she knew how to talk. Not that she taught her how to talk, taught her to find her voice again. Yeah, it seemed like she was maybe selectively mute due to trauma. Yeah. Flowers also introduced Madge to authors such as Charles Dickens. All Chuckle Dickies. Chucky Dicky. Chucky Dicky. Big Willie Shakespeare. Eddie Poe. And then others I don't know. Others who are not Ona Lit Class yeah. alums who we don't have fun nicknames for. Georgia Douglas Johnson and James Weldon Johnson. As well as black female artists like Frances Harper, Anne Spencer, and Jesse Fawcett. Once Madge was talking again, when she was 14, she was again swooped up and sent back to live with mom. Can we not? Can we stop? I'm beginning to think that maybe mom didn't want a mute child around and now Madge was talking again and they were like, oh, get her, bring her back. Oh, she's fixed now. Cool. This is one of those RJ conspiracies. <laughs> oh, the, the literary conspiracy theories? Yeah. Yeah, gee, I'm seeing a, a pattern here emerging. It's like, oh, cool, you, you, she's fixed. All right, yeah, bring her home, because this worked so good the first time. 
By now, Mom had relocated from St. Louis to Oakland. It was 1942 and America was involved in World War II. Madge was sent to the California Labor School. I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad. Well, it was shut down a few years later. (laughs) And as you might guess by the name, it was associated with dirty, filthy, pinko communist. Ah. And the school was eventually added to the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations. Some of the biggest funders of the school were the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, American Veterans Committee, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Oh, so was it just like a trade school? Labor for commies. But yeah. Oh. But yeah, they're unionized. Okay. So uh, it wasn't actually yeah, bad. So obviously very scary organizations. <laughs> Even scarier were some of the more popular courses the school offered. Mental Hygiene Today. <gasps> and History and Problems of the Negro in America. <gasps> you know, very dangerous ideas and things to teach and to listen to. Good thing it got shut down. But this was the educational upbringing Madge was exposed to. Can you believe they were telling black people they got a raw deal and teaching them this? Mm-mm. Dangerous. Mm -hmm. Living in Oakland and traveling across the bay quite often to San Francisco, Madge fell in love with the cable cars in San Fran. So much so that it became a dream job of hers, according to her mother. She admired the operators, the uniforms, basically everything about the cable car system. Well, at the age of 16, Madge became the first black female cable car conductor in San Francisco. Huh. Her mother supported Madge's endeavors, but warned her that she would need to arrive earlier and work harder than everybody else. That was not a fun fact that I'd anticipated. Later in life, in 2014, Madge's achievement was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Conference of Minority Transportation Officials as part of the Women Who Move the Nation program. All right. Good for her. (laughs) She graduated from the California Labor School when she was 17 and celebrated by having a baby, Clyde, who later changed his name to Guy Johnson. I'm not sure when he changed his name, but he was Clyde and then he was Guy. People do stuff. I'm not over this, the the cable car thing. It was romantic. Well, no, no, yeah, no, I just think that's like a great fit. That's like one of those, uh, you know, when we started this show on on the uh, notion of like fun facts to drop at parties that people will not expect. That would be a great one. Be like, oh, yes, the poetry of Maya Angelou. Be like, yeah, do you know she was the first black female cable car operator in San Francisco? Bet you didn't fucking know that. Oh, it's totally a Jeopardy question in the making. Absolutely. Like under Americana. (laughs) This noted African-American author was the first black female cable car conductor in America. (laughs) And we're going to say Maya Angelou. At 23 in 1951, Madge married a Greek electrician, former sailor, and aspiring musician, Tosh Angelos. As you may have guessed, Tosh was not black which led to condemnation at the time of their interracial relationship from people like Madge's mother. During this time, Madge took modern dance classes and met dancers and choreographers Alvin Ailey and Ruth Beckford. Ailey and Madge formed a dance team calling themselves Alvin Rita and performed modern dance at fraternal black organizations throughout San Francisco, but never became successful. Madge took the whole family on the move that many American writers make. She moved her husband and son to New York City, Not because of writing, but so she could study African dance with Trinidadian dancer Pearl Primus. All right, so she went to New York City. 
where literally all the writers go. So she did check off that bingo square. But it wasn't for writing reasons. <laughs> and the stay only lasted a year before they returned to San Francisco. Madge's marriage ended in 1954 after just three years. She danced professionally in clubs around San Francisco, including the nightclub The Purple Onion, where she sang and danced to Calypso music. I like the Purple Onion. Purple Onion. Up to that point, she performed under the name Marguerite Johnson or Rita, but her managers and supporters convinced her to change her professional name to her nickname and married name, Maya Angelou. The thought was that Maya Angelou was a distinctive name that set her apart and captured the feel of her Calypso dance performances. In 1954 and 1955, Madge toured Europe with a production of the opera Porgy and Bess. She began practicing learning the language of every country she visited in. In 1957, at 29, writing on the popularity of Calypso, Angelo recorded her first album, Miss Calypso, which was reissued as a CD in 1996. You can listen now. Madge also appeared in an off-Broadway review that inspired the 1957 film Calypso Heatwave, in which Angelo sang and performed her own compositions. In 1959, Madge met novelist John Oliver Killens and, at his urging, moved to New York again to concentrate this time on a writing career. She joined the Harlem Writers Guild and was published for the first time. In 1960, she met civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., which inspired her to continue to write, produce art, and speak out on political issues she cared about. It was now that Madge began her own pro-Castro and anti-apartheid activism. No one could bat a thousand. <laughs> In 1961, at 33, Madge performed in John Janae's play, The Blacks, along with James Earl Jones, Louis Gossett, and Cecily Tyson. Other names I know. Ah, I recognize those. <laughs> Madge then moved with her son to Africa, where the two made a few stops over the next few years. First was Cairo, Egypt, where Madge worked as an associate editor at the English-language newspaper, The Arab Observer. A year later, in 1962, they moved to Accra, Ghana, so her son could attend college. The two stayed there until 1965, where she became an administrator at the University of Ghana and was active in the African-American expatriate community. She was a feature editor of the African Review, a freelance writer of the Ghanaian Times, wrote and broadcast for Radio Ghana, and worked and performed for Ghana's National Theater. Damn! So she's also a Ghanaian national hero. Madge became close friends with Malcolm X during his visit to Accra. This led to her to return to the U.S. in 1965 to help him build a new civil rights organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity. If you've seen the Denzel Washington movie, or know history, you should know he was assassinated shortly thereafter. Devastated and adrift, Madge joined her brother in Hawaii, where she resumed her singing career. See, Obama's all over this story. Wait, because she went to Hawaii? Oh, well, you got more. <laughs> How is this? They connect the dots. Got the uh, got the Hawaii. You're just grasping at straws here. Well, I didn't think about it until you started saying like my uh, and he's the one who's always doing that. Madge joined her brother in Hawaii, where she resumed her singing career. This was not working out for her, so she moved to L.A., started writing again, reconnected with James Baldwin, who she met during her time touring in Europe, and now referred to him as my brother. In 1968, her friend MLK Jr. was killed on her 40th birthday. An Angelo biographer said of the year, quote, If 1968 was a year of great pain, loss, and sadness, it was also the year when America first witnessed the breadth and depth of Maya Angelou's spirit and creative genius. Despite having almost no experience, she wrote, produced, and narrated Black's Blues Black, 
a 10-part series of documentaries about the connection between blues music and Black Americans' African heritage for national education television that became PBS. Also in 1968, at a dinner party she attended with James Baldwin, she was inspired to write her first autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Did we say, oh no, class alum, James Baldwin? Sure. <laughs> oh no, class alum, James, James Baldwin. Baldwin. <laughs> Which was published the next year. This brought her international recognition and acclaim. So wait, so like uh, he, he dared her? It was basically, they were all sitting around like, you should write a book. Yeah, you should write an autobiography. They all <laughs> sat around and she was kind of basically shamed into it by James Baldwin. <laughs> and someone was there from uh, whatever press she wrote for. I think it was random. It was random press. And they're like, yeah, you should do this. And she's like, okay. I like the idea of just like you're at a dinner party and like one of your friends is just like, hey, write a book, you coward. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> write a book unless you're a pussy. <laughs> basically what happened. And she's like, well, fuck you. Classic autobiography. Eat it. <laughs> she followed this up with the film Georgia, Georgia, which is noted as being the first production with the screenplay written by a black woman. And she also composed the score of the film. Because fuck you, I'm Maya Angelou. <laughs> Over the next 10 years. So here you go, Meg. Here's where it gets good. The next 10 years of her life. You wanted that checklist? Yeah. As a biographer has stated, quote, Oh, they didn't say Madge. I said Madge. So, <laughs> <laughs> biographer stated, old Madge. <laughs> Madge accomplished more than many artists hope to achieve in a lifetime. She worked as a composer, writing for singer Roberta Flack, composed movie scores, got married again for a few years, wrote articles, short stories, TV scripts, documentaries, autobiographies, and poetry, produced plays, and was named the visiting professor at several colleges and universities, became a, quote, reluctant actor. Even though she was nominated for a Tony Award in 1973 for her role in Look Away, she also served as a theater director, appeared in a supporting role in the television miniseries Roots, earned a multitude of awards during this period, including more than 30 honorary degrees from colleges and universities from all over the world. A.K.A. the Robert Frost method. In the late 1970s, Angelo met Oprah Winfrey when Oprah was a TV anchor in Baltimore. Angelo would later become Oprah's close friend and mentor. And if that wasn't enough, she got divorced again. <laughs> busy, busy. Ten years. Ten years. Jesus. In 1981, she accepted the Lifetime Reynolds Professorship of American Studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she was one of a few full-time African-American professors. She was offered this position despite not even having a bachelor's degree. You see, kids, even without a degree, you can do anything. Again, it's the Robert Frost poetry method. You don't get a degree, you do poetry, you get a bunch of honorary degrees, you get asked to teach at college. <laughs> oh, I hope like Robert Frost. My Angelo checked her white male privilege. <laughs> Madge continued to write and lecture and tour over the next decades. She also stayed politically involved. Fast forward to 2008. She supported and stumped for Hillary Clinton, who lost by nearly 30 points to Barack Obama in South Carolina, where Madge made her endorsement of Hillary official. Remember what I said when no one could bat a thousand? Well, there you go again. As for, and maybe she disliked him because of that damn stutter of his, just like her brother. Wow. Well, what's she seeing, Hillary? Can you imagine an African-American author backed Hillary over Barack? RJ? What's up? I really think we probably ought to stay in our lane on this one. <laughs> I supported Barack. 
I mean, I voted for him. God, we sound like the white people from Get Out. I'm not doing this. I would have voted for him for a third time if I could. Yo, I consider Bill Clinton the first black president. God fucking damn it. I have to talk about Bill Clinton later. I'm not doing as for literary acclaim, Madge is known by some as, quote, the Black Woman's Poet Laureate. One critic said, quote, For the last couple of decades, she has merged her various talents into a kind of performance art, issuing a message of personal and social uplift by blending poetry, song, and conversation. Of course, with fame comes other kinds of attention as well. Madge's books, especially I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, has been criticized by many parents, causing their removal from school curricula and library shelves. Of course. According to the National Coalition Against Censorship, some parents and some schools have objected to Cage Bird's uh, depictions of lesbianism, premaritable cohabitation, pornography, and <sighs> violence. Some have been critical of the book's sexually explicit scenes, use of language, and irreverent depictions of religion. Oh. I know. Madge, who writes about holding many jobs, including some in the sex trade, working as a madam for lesbians, specifically for lesbians. That's very specific. Said, quote, I wrote about my experiences because I thought too many people tell young folks I never did anything wrong. Who? Moi? Never I. I have no skeletons in my closet. In fact, I have no closet. They lie like that, and then young people find themselves in situations, and they think, damn, I must be a pretty bad guy. My mom or dad never did anything wrong. They can't forgive themselves and they can't go on with their lives. The details of Angelo's life described in her seven autobiographies and in numerous interviews, speeches, and articles have, shall we say, tended to be a bit inconsistent. Defenders say she spoke of her life eloquently but informally and, quote, with no time chart in front of her. For example, she was married at least twice but never clarified the number of times she was married, saying, quote, for fear of sounding frivolous. What does that mean? <laughs> she didn't tell us all the truth. It's artistic. For fear, for fear of sounding frivolous, like she told us the truth about something. She, she embellished. But no, but specifically, uh, how many times she was married? <laughs> she had a lot of uh, gentlemen partners. So we know two. They were married. Some like they were together for a few years. Unclear if they were married or not, and then they weren't together anymore. That's just relationships. <laughs> she doesn't want to sound frivolous. Maya Angelo got around. I mean, good for her. Madge died on the morning of May 28, 2014, at the age of 86. She was found by her nurse. Although Angelo had reportedly been in poor health and had canceled recent scheduled appearances, she was working on another book, an autobiography about her experiences with national and world leaders. During her memorial service at Wake Forest University, her son Guy Johnson stated that despite being in constant pain due to her dancing career and respiratory failure, she wrote four books during the last 10 years of her life. He said, quote, she left this mortal plane with no loss of acuity and no loss in comprehension. And for the record, yes, the U.S. Postal Service did make a Maya Angelou stamp, which means Madge gets the RJ seal of fame approval. The end. Gotta get that stamp. I will say, I mean, are you going to talk about her cookbooks at all? No, I'm not going to talk about her cookbooks. So she lived like her remaining years in Wake Forest mm -hmm. or in Winston-Salem. <laughs> they didn't like keep her locked up in Wake Forest College. <laughs> Apparently like the invitation or invitations of the year was to get to Maya Angelou's Thanksgiving party and her Christmas party. Ah. And she cooked. And she cooked well. And you wanted to be there. Or you were a loser. 
I see. Yep. So those cookbooks are probably really good. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Megan, your host with the snow. It's snowing outside, and and that's the thing that's right in front of my face. So I, I said that it's it's late at night per usual, and and that's the heater kicking on, which I forgot to turn off. I could get up and do it, but I don't want to. It's fine. What I would like to do is to take a moment to tell you about our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, incredible... <laughs> ah, j- d- fuck was that sound? Jesus. <laughs> I should also probably redo that take, but honestly, it's probably funnier if I don't. I don't know what that noise was. That sounded like a, a door closing that was probably just one of the cats that did scare the shit out of me just now though i want to tell you about our patrons they're really great and amazing and uh this episode is brought to you in part by them uh like all of our episodes their support is what helps bring the show to you and keep the show rolling and that includes our newest patrons uh returning patrons certainly cheryl and uh, new patron, John C. So thank you to John C. And certainly Cheryl and all of our other patrons as well. If you would like to help, help support the show on Patreon, um, then you can go to... I'm Now I'm just like looking over my shoulder and shit. Uh, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash class and do that. And now I'm going to let you get back to the episode... And I'm gonna figure out what that was. And I guess if you're, you know, if you're hearing this, then obviously I edited and uploaded it and was not murdered by by a snow demon. Alright, go listen to some poetry. Okay then, let's get into the poems. And may as well start right off with a banger. Still I Rise. Bangering. Oh. Um, I thought you said a banger. Bang, I said a, ba- a banger, not a bangerang. Also, those sure were some sounds. Bangerang. It's fantastic. Still I Rise, published in 1978 from the collection And Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes? Shoulders falling down like teardrops weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard. Cause I laugh like I got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Yes. (laughs) Does it come as a surprise? 
That I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Whoa. At the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bearing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Like I said, starting you off with a banger. <laughs> so the first thing you probably notice, apart from, apart from the, well, the first thing you probably notice is the horny part. <laughs> I would think diamonds are uncomfortable in that area. Can't be good to hold diamonds there. The first thing you probably notice after that part is hey, that was easy. We've read a lot of difficult poems on this show. Sometimes difficult due to how old the poems are and like changes in language and sometimes difficult due to the poets just being like that. With Angelo, we have a poet who is for us extremely contemporary and also real easy to follow. Downright Robert Frost, um, but you know, fun. I mean, they're definitely not all fun. Like I don't want to miscontextualize here. I highly, highly, super recommend checking out her reading it aloud because that's the thing with these poems. They are, by and large, for the most part, meant to be read aloud. Angela was a singer, she was a performer, and that is absolutely reflected in the rhythm of these poems. I'm white, I can only do so much. Um, for this one specifically, I would say go to YouTube and search for her reading of the poem from Live and Unplugged. It's real easy to find, and it's fun. <laughs> uh, these poems are meant to be alive and not like dead words on a page. Uh, Angelo's talked quite a bit about your friend and mine, Big Willie Shakespeare, being a significant source of inspiration to her. And like, I know you mentioned him in the, the list of alums, but like she's, she's mentioned him specifically uh, a few times in like interviews and stuff. And I, I think there's like a strong connection between them in that he's someone else whose stuff is meant to be performed. It's meant to be read out loud and not just like stared at on the page, you know? And this is where the critics come in because poetry critics tend to look best on poetry that's like good in the way of when it's read on a page and not when it's read out loud. Um, Tell that to E.E. E. Cummings. Well, poetry critics have struggled with E.E. E. Cummings too, but also E.E. E. Cummings is a visual poet, is how it works on a page. And then also there is this notion of, well, if thing isn't difficult and complex, is thing good? Is thing perhaps too simple. And a lot of critics like to argue that Angelo's poems are in fact too simple, and it's actually her reading of them that's what's good, the style of the performance that she injects into them. And that on their own is the words on the page, they're like, eh. I mean, like, yes, she won Pulitzers and shit for the poetry, so like, it's not in question, but comparatively, critics like to look at the poetry and they go, eh. You know, like, this one, I really don't have to give you much analysis on it. You know, it's Fuck you, you, you racist bastards. You can't keep me down. Also, I'm kind of hot. <laughs> you might be threatened by me sexually. <laughs> Except, you know, lyrical and beautiful. So for this next poem, however, I'm going to do a big old 180 because critics have a lot of mixed feelings about this poem specifically. And I don't actually particularly care for it personally. 
But I felt like we ought to include it because of like historical and cultural context. And it's it's called On the Pulse of Morning, and it was published in 1993. Now, y'all may remember uh, the Ono Lit Class alone that we keep referring back to, old Robbie Frost. And we mentioned in our episode on him that JFK tapped him to recite some poetry for his inauguration. That was a big deal, because that was not a thing that a president had ever done before. Well, no president would do it again for over 30 years. Maybe because they assumed that it was cursed now, because things didn't end great for JFK, as <laughs> you may recall. There's been more movies about JFK than like any other president. <laughs> well, until Bill Clinton called up Angelo and was like, hey, do me a Robert Frost for my dinog, please and thanks. And she did. Did things end well or poorly for Bill Clinton? I guess for this specific term, they did. He got reelected for another term. It was the second one that things didn't go so uh, hot. So, I mean, take from that what you will. Oh, they did go hot. They went too hot. That's the issue. And so this is the poem that she read. And she wrote it specifically to call out the poem that Frost had intended to read at JFK's inauguration. That then he didn't. Because the sun was too, it was too in his eyes, if you remember. Uh, it was bright. <laughs> too bright. Can't read it. In, in this poem, she tries to like personify nature in the same way that he does, but like call out all of his old white man shit and like being horny for pastoral America. If I'm ever elected president, dear listeners, well, no, it costs. I will have a poet laureate come read a piece of work. It won't be a poem, more of a song, but I'll ask them to read it. Baby shark. Doot, doot, doot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, my, fel- that's what my, I my want. fellow Americans. My fellow Americans. Baby, ow, oh, I hit that. Baby shark, shark. doot, doot, doot. Oh, like, like a, really, a really solemn baby shark for baby the occasion. Baby shark. Doot, 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 doot. Mama shark, doot. Dude, dude, dude. Now, and which, so which fucking so national treasure are you going to uh, force to, like, come do that? Who are you going to, like, make debase themselves? Sherman Alexi. <laughs> How old is Sherman Alexi? I think I'll be into it. And I want to, you know, <laughs> give some be- pub to those Native American authors Megan hasn't covered yet. It's the only Sherman Alexi book that I know that people know is is that absolute story of a part time or absolutely true story of a part time Indian. Okay, he also has poetry. Oh, I've never read any of his poetry. Mm-hmm. How could you have done any Native Americans? Well, this is the problem that we run into. Not a lot of Native Americans are assigned. I did a whole classes in them. I got a whole bunch of Native books out there. Yeah, you yeah, because yeah, that was a class even you comic did. Books. That was a class you did in. There was one class you did in grad school. Yeah, buddy. At multiple costs because I had the films one. Yeah, taught by the one professor that you had in grad yeah, school. I sought it out. It was different. Yeah. Yeah. The professor who also just so happened to be a maniac, but this is neither here nor there. I learned a lot from that, man. <laughs> you t- I'm not saying you don't learn a lot from maniacs. Yeah. I learned quite a bit from my maniac professors. Anyway, on the pulse of morning. A rock, a river, a tree. Host to species long since departed, marked the mastodon, the dinosaur who left dried tokens of their sojourn here on our planet floor, 
Any broad alarm of their hastening doom is lost in the gloom of dust and ages. But today the rock cries out to us clearly, forcefully, Come, you may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness, have lain too long, face down in ignorance, your mouth spilling words, armed for slaughter. The rock cries out to us today, you may stand upon me, but do not hide your face. Across the wall of the world, a river sings a beautiful song. It says, come, rest here by my side. Each of you a bordered country, delicate and strangely made proud, yet thrusting perpetually under siege. Your armed struggles for profit have left collars of waste upon my shore, currents of debris upon my breast. Yet today I call you to my riverside, if you will study war no more. Come, clad in peace, and I will sing the songs the Creator gave to me when I and the tree and the rock were one. Before cynicism was a bloody sear across your brow, and when you yet knew, you still knew nothing. The river sang and sings on. There is a true yearning to respond to the singing river and the wise rock. So say the Asian, the Hispanic, the Jew, the African, the Native American, the Sioux, the Catholic, the Muslim, the French, the Greek, the Irish, the rabbi, the priest, the sheik, the gay, the straight, the preacher, the privileged, the homeless, the teacher. They hear, they all hear the speaking of the tree. They hear the first and the last of every tree speak to humankind today. Come to me here beside the river. Plant yourself beside the river. Each of you, descendant of some passed-on traveler, has been paid for. You who gave me my first name. You, Pawnee, Apache, Seneca. You, Cherokee Nation, who rested with me then, forced on bloody feet, left me to the employment of other seekers, desperate for gain, starving for gold. You, the Turk, the Arab, the Swede, the German, the Eskimo, the Scot, you, the Ashanti, the Yoruba, the crew, bought, sold, stolen, arriving on the nightmare, praying for a dream. Here, root yourselves beside me. I am that tree planted by the river, which will not be moved. I, the rock, I, the river, I, the tree, I am yours. Your passages have been paid. Lift up your faces. You have a piercing need for this bright morning dawning for you. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Lift up your eyes upon this day breaking for you. Give birth again to the dream. Women, children, men, take it into the palms of your hands. Mold it into the shape of your most private need. Sculpt it into the image of your most public self. Lift up your hearts. Each new hour holds new chances for a new beginning. Do not be wedded forever to fear, yoked eternally to brutishness. The horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here on the pulse of this fine day, you may have the courage to look up and out, and upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country. No less to Midas than the mendicant. No less to you now than the mastodon then. Here on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. I mean, it's, it's an inauguration poem. <laughs>
when they refer to uh, the rock throughout, it's always yeah, capital R? Yeah, it's always capital R. Because well, yeah. it's the rock, the river, the tree. Dwayne Johnson. Yes. The, today, the Dwayne Johnson cries out to us clearly, forcefully. Come, you may stand upon my back and face your destiny. You're welcome. Ride this Dwayne Johnson to freedom. So the recording of the poem won a Grammy. And you can go and see her reading it on YouTube at the inauguration and everything. And it's very... Uh, what's this not a word but like oratory okay like it's very like in the style of like a, a martin luther king jr kind of or oration oration sure that sounds like a word and so yeah obviously her reading it's really fucking good but critics were rough on the poem on the grounds that it was quote not very memorable <laughs> a poet named sterling d plump which is quite a name found angelo's performance quote, brilliant, but was, quote, not as enthusiastic about it as a text. It's a lot of the same kind of issues critics have with her poetry, like, as a whole. I don't like it quite as much because I don't think it sounds like her other poetry. It, it reads kind of stiff to me, if that makes sense. Like, it sounds like what it is, like an intentional response to Robert Frost. I, I think it is still very, it's very heavy. It's very momentous and stuff. It sounds like what it's supposed to be, like the purpose that it was written for. It just doesn't sound like the voice that a lot of her other poetry has to me. So it's like, I don't like it quite as much, but it seemed like something that should have been included just because she was the second poet ever to read at a presidential inauguration and the first woman and the first African-American. So seemed worth bringing up. But yeah, definitely worth uh, also looking up on YouTube and listening to it. And I know I feel like I may as well be like, why well, even listen to this podcast? Just go listen to Maya Angelou read poems on YouTube. What are we even here for? Don't do that yet, because we're here for what this show has always been here for. Talking shit about old white dudes in academia with bad opinions. We're getting there. I promise. But first we gotta read this poem. It's called Phenomenal Woman. It was published in 1978. It's another one from And Still I Rise. So, yeah, I'm clustering. Whatever. So sue me. Does this woman have diamonds in her coochie, too? It's entirely possible. Oh. Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size. But when I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. I say it's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my step, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. I walk into a room, just as cool as you please, and to a man, the fellows stand or fall down on their knees, then swarm around me a hive of honeybees. I say, it's the fire in my eyes and the flash of my teeth, the swing in my waist and the joy in my feet. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Men themselves have wondered what they see in me. They try so much, but they can't touch my inner mystery. When I try to show them, they say they still can't see. I say, it's in the arch of my back, the sun of my smile, the ride of my breasts, the grace of my style. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. Now you understand just why my head's not bowed, or I don't shout or jump about or have to talk real loud. When you see me passing, it ought to make you proud. I say, it's in the click of my heels, the bend of my hair, in the palm of my hand, the need for my care. Cause I'm a woman, 
phenomenally. Phenomenal woman. That's me. I'm the cock of the walk. Got a yeah. cock in my pants. All the women go. What's with this guy? And I'm like, I got a cock. Thank you. <laughs> Phenomenal man. That's me. Oh, yeah. That's you. All right. So it, it does have similar-ish themes to Still I Rise, but I think this poem in particular is really interesting to me just because its simplicity is very deceptive, and I think it requires knowing about Maya Angelou to like fully appreciate that it's not just kind of like, woo, girl power. Like, I'm not like other girls. I'm different. I was the first black female cable car conductor in America. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I feel like there's a lot you have to appreciate in context that, you know, she's writing this, I'm a phenomenal woman sort of thing. She's writing it as a black woman in her mid forties in the 1970s. Yeah. And also it's about that. She's not necessarily embodying traditionally idealized feminine traits, which she says at the very beginning there, she's not cute. She's not fashion model sized or whatever, but she's very proud. She's sexually confident. She's very specifically sexually confident but she is 100% in control of like her identity and her narrative and how she is perceived by other people and by men specifically and how they see and interact with her men themselves have wondered what they see in me they try so much but they can't touch my inner mystery um and that that feels important for someone to write that that's a narrative that they're owning as an adult and as a, someone who is like a survivor of like sexual abuse. And 50 years later, we got wet ass pussy. Good, good, solid contribution. Yeah. <laughs> you are no help whatsoever. She's like the 1970s version of Megan <laughs> Thee Stallion. Own it. Girl, girl power. Just looks different. I mean, obviously she's also talking about when she was a dancer and the other job she had, right? They can't touch. They yeah. can look. Check it out. I mean, she doesn't paint herself as a victim here. No, and I didn't And she might not that think of herself as yeah, a victim. She was a child. She wasn't a woman. No, I wasn't saying that she was painting herself as a victim at all. It's empowering. Yeah. She finds power in the woman's body. Yeah. It's like, which which wave of feminism is this one, Meg? No, no. That, that's what I'm saying, that it's it's a poem about finding power in a woman's body. Yeah? So which wave of feminism then, is this? Uh, I don't know. Late 70s was what? I don't so know. second or third wave? I don't know. Uh, what other point you want to make about no, this? No, that's it. That's it? That's it. Female empowerment yeah. through the body. Doesn't yeah. have to be perfect. Sexy is sexy, my friend. Doesn't have to fit some white, cis, het, male's idea of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Like Megan Thee Stallion. <laughs> I don't know why her. What's the name of the one that actually does WAP? Pretty sure that is. Isn't that her and, like, Nicki Minaj oh, or yeah, something? Oh, yeah. Nicki I think it's Nicki Minaj's song. Is it? Yeah. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, it's none of them. Who is it? It's uh, Cardi B's song oh. with Megan Thee Stallion. Nicki Minaj is not involved in any way. You, you better get you, that you, disrespect you, out your mouth. We're so bad at this. Look, we had one of them, right? I know, Megan Thee Stallion. She's the it girl. It's true. Okay, last poem is called Awaking in New York, published in... 1983, as part of the collection Shaker, Why Don't You Sing? And you might be like, gee, Meg, you're not going to put, like, Caged Bird or something in here? Nope. 
You got your culturally and historically important Maya Angelou poems for this episode. Here's a real short one that isn't famous or well-known that I'm including for no good reason other than I just like it. Yeah? Yep. Curtains forcing their will against the wind, children sleep, exchanging dreams with Seraphim. The city drags itself awake on subway straps, and I, in alarm, awake as a rumor of war, lie stretching into dawn, unasked and unheeded. I just think it's neat. I like how it sounds. Or like the line, drags it, the city drags itself awake on subway straps, and uh, unasked and unheeded. Oh, it's like that Marge Simpson thing. I just, I just think it's neat. <laughs> I like how it sounds. Midge! Sometimes poems can just be that. They can be. There really aren't adaptations. These are poems. Go look up readings on YouTube. Maya Angelou's poetry specifically has had a major and lasting influence in rap and hip-hop music, which makes sense. I literally have not shut up about the fact that they have a strong natural rhythm and they're meant to be read aloud and performed and, you know, delivered with, like, style and shit as opposed to just, like, read... So, yeah, absolutely her work would lend itself to rap. Uh, Tupac actually, like, hung out with her, which is badass, and used her poetry in an album appropriately named Still I Rise. Uh, she's mentioned in songs by Danny Brown, The Roots, Lupe Fiasco, and Nicki Minaj. A lot of early Kanye West, before he started seeing Kim Kardashian stop taking medication and God knows what else, is full of references to Maya Angelou and takes inspiration from her work. 2005 to 2009 Kanye. Those were the good times. Maya Angelou also collaborated with Common on the 2011 song The Dreamer, where she recited a poem at the end. Apparently she didn't realize till afterward that he cussed on it, though. And she was, she was kind of bummed out by that. She was surprised and disappointed. <laughs> Which, like, given all the things that she's said and done and everything in her life it seems a weird thing for her to get hung up on where it's like you said swears in your song common that i read a poem at the end of should have warned me <laughs> you common saying swears uh but overall she was always vocally positive and supportive about the rap community being so into her poetry saying it was a way for younger people to discover her stuff which like yeah and that listening to rappers made her optimistic about the future of poetry so that was always a cool thing. And that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. And that is ARJ. So. Maya Angelou. Yeah. Poems. Yeah. Poetry. Yeah. Good or bad. Maya Angelou was a cool person. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did not deny that the Holocaust happened. <laughs> As far as I know. As far as we know. But yeah, Maya Angela. Cool. She wrote it like she saw it. In her own words. In her own body. And she was proud of those words in that body. That's a good, hot RJ tip for you people out there. Love yourself. Maya Angelou did. So should you. Then you got all the feel money in your pocket. And love others. But Maya Angelou gets you one third of the way there. Hey, Vegas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Maya Angelou. Yeah. Sup. Was that directed towards me or Maya Angelou? Both. Sup, baby. <laughs> yeah. How, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is where all of my yelling goes. 
Okay. <laughs> so, poems can look like a lot of different things, which is a stupid fucking sentence. But y'all know we're poetry dumbasses here, so just bear with me. What I mean is we spent a good amount of time deconstructing, like, some wacky-ass poetry on this show. Yes, we have. And, like, for a lot of people, that's their conception of what poetry has to look like to be poetry or to be, like, good poetry. But poetry looks like all kinds of shit. And in Maya Angelou's case, it's theatrical. It's very much gesturing back to, like, an African-American oral tradition, which is a problem for some people. Maya Angelou definitely doesn't need us to, like, advocate for her, but also, you get dumb motherfuckers given professional fucking criticisms like literary critic Harold Bloom, who, if you've listened to enough of this show, you'll know is one of my mortal enemies, and is quoted saying that Angelou's poetry is, quote, popular poetry. God forbid. (laughs) Well, that's the whole thing, Meg. If it's popular for the masses, it's not good. Right? It's like Oscar films. Well, when's the Oscar every year? Usually the movies that aren't so popular because then it's art. But if it's popular, it's schlock. So I mean, it's the same thing with poetry, same thing with everything. People want to be on the in crowd, which means they're going to be outsiders. And so it's popular is on the outside. People are like that with music, right? Jazz. Right? There's popular <laughs> jazz, but then there's you, the real jazz. You got to listen to the notes they're not playing. I still don't know what that means. It It means you got to listen to the shit that hurts your ears (laughs) because they're purposely playing the notes that don't sound so good. They could be playing them pretty notes, but they're choosing not to because that's what's real, man. That sounds fake. It's all fake because there's nothing that's real. That's the secret that Harold Bloom doesn't want to admit. (laughs) But Harold Bloom doesn't want you to know. Well, can I read the second part of what he was going to say? Because it's the part that that actually makes me... Because he he says it's popular poetry, which already, you know, like we've just said, like you. uh, And that it, quote, makes no formal or cognitive demands upon the reader. See, that's the part that I get upset about. It's too easy. Yeah, it's not making you think hard enough. Because if you're not struggling with it, then surely it's not good. <laughs> yeah, like Black Panther. <laughs> Unlike... See, but Parasite... Well, I don't think Parasite makes you struggle to understand it. <laughs> it did. I don't speak Korean. <laughs> Jesus. It made the movie a lot harder to understand. I actually read. I don't read words on the screen. You have subtitles up for it movie we're watching because it's hard for me yes yeah, gotta practice for movies like parasite or you get takes that are also those aren't the same year <laughs> what challenges the year black panther was it a uh, merman i have no idea time isn't real anymore fish fucking the fish fucking i don't know what one that was antichrist that's another one made me think it's what first i thought how big is that dick then number two, I thought, why are you doing that to that big dick? <laughs> Willem, no. And then also, what happened to that poor baby? Then I thought the same exact thought when I saw Mother. What are you doing to that poor baby? Oh, fuck that movie. That's another one that makes you think. Harold yeah, Bloom probably it, it, loves it. it. Makes you th- well, Harold Bloom's dead, so he doesn't love anything. <laughs> uh, Can anyone really ever be dead? It's co- Again, Coco rules. So you're keeping him alive, Meg. That's the irony here. <laughs> I'm keeping Harold Bloom tethered to limbo by continuously invoking his name. Remember me. (laughs) Even when I'm gone, remember me. 
you get takes that also aren't just stupid. They're, you know, kind of rooted in racism also. Zofia Burr is a scholar who wrote a whole fucking book about women poets having to put up with this shit. Connects Angelo's lack of, like, critical acclaim in poetry to her popular success, again, and to critics' preferences for poetry as a written form than a verbal performed one. And so we get a lot of this shit. We get a lot of fucking white-ass, old-ass critics. I, I even, I looked up some of these, the ones that I could find who... I could, when I looked up these guys' names, be like, all right, which one of these is old white men? I need to know. <laughs> There's a critic named James Finn Cotter in his review of Oh, Pray My Wings Are Gonna Fit Me Well, where he called it an unfortunate example of the dangers of success, saying that her fame has, quote, muted the private and personal quality that it takes to be essential to poetry. Like, I, I could just hear, like, the jerk-off motion. <laughs> it's like oh you're too famous you're not locking yourself alone in a closet and dying unknown and unloved only for your poetry to be discovered 20 years after your death <laughs> oh because you're writing poetry for yourself it's pure this is writing for the masses yeah fuck you man critic john hickory Al dickory duck <laughs> who wants to suck my cock <laughs> Critic John Alfred Avant said of, uh, just give me a cool drink of water for I die. Actually, I mean, really, really the name of the book is just give me a cool drink of water for I die. There's a lot of eyes in there. Uh, the book was nominated for, or the collection was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Despite that, he says, quote, it isn't accomplished, not by any means. <laughs> Fuck you, bro. Oh yeah, critic Brian D. Bourne criticizes her for not catering to poetry critics. <laughs> Why is this not for me? <laughs> Why does she not make thing for me? Scholar uh, Joanne Braxton, who is not an old white man, but a black woman, uh, scholar asserts that, quote, Angela's audience composed largely of women and blacks isn't really affected by what white and or male critics of the dominant literary tradition have to say about her work. This audience does not read literary critics. It does read Maya Angelou. And so, uh, Zofia Burr, who had compiled all of this, condemns Angelou's critics, quote, for their narrow view of poetry, which has resulted in their negative reviews of her poetry and for not taking into account Angelo's larger purposes in her writing, quote, to be representative rather than individual, authoritative rather than confessional. So like you're saying, not writing poetry for herself in a little closet somewhere, but writing poetry for the masses for people to read. How dare she? How dare she? Women should bottle that up. <laughs> bottle that up and put it away somewhere. Well, like men, they can take it out on the football field, on the gridiron. <laughs> That's where emotions go to play. Just be like Emily Dickinson. Write it all down in a bunch of journals. Try to set them on fire. Fail to die die somewhere. Okay. Yeah, bake bake a whole bunch. Die somewhere, and then let your family members find them years later. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, they're good poems. These criticisms are bullshit like maybe there are good criticisms that you could make these aren't the good criticisms these are bullshit criticisms 
But yeah, that's what's cool about poetry. It can be complicated, it can be simple, it can be short, it can be long. It can be a massive book where you go to hell with your favorite ancient poet who carries you around and gives you kisses. Or it can be nine stanzas of you being sexually threatened by Maya Angelou. Poetry! And that will about do it for this episode of Auto Lit Class. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating or a review. Just help spread the word. That's how our weird-ass book and ding-dong nonsense podcast survives. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell someone you know who keeps a diamond between their thighs. <laughs> Be like, hey, that looks kind of uncomfortable. Why don't you sit down, take a load off, and listen to this podcast. It's pretty good. You can like us on Facebook, tweet as at uh, onolitclasspod, buy some stuff in our store at onolitclass.threadless.com. Uh, links to all that and more are always at onolitclass.com. Thank you to Best Day for our banger of a theme song. Scotty makes me thank him every episode of the other show that I do, Fun Fiction, and I feel very guilty about it. You can check out more of his music, Best Days, not Scotty's, at soundcloud.com slash best hyphen day or by going on Spotify or Apple Music and searching for Best Day. Uh, our next episode will be out on March 4th. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Because I can't remember what wave of feminism was in the late 70s. Yeah. You, you can't either. There's some skills I bring to the table and some knowledge I bring to the table. There's some you are supposed to bring to the table. I never took a fucking women's studies class. It is chose. I dislike you.